You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. You're getting to hear from me this week as we continue through our series on exalting, lifting up Jesus. We're in John chapter 18 uh, this week as we continue our road to the cross. Uh, We're very, very close, almost there. John chapter 18, it's a bit of a longer passage. So as we read it this morning, maybe think about ways, I think John is showing us some really amazing irony and contrast here. So something to think about, maybe look for. Starting in verse 12 of John chapter 18. Christ has just been arrested. So the band of soldiers and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he'd said these things, one of the officers struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, and he said, I am not. One of his servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. The Jews said, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate enters the headquarters again, and he called Jesus to him, and he said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do other people say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he'd said this, Pilate went out back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this passage, sorry, it's kind of long. There's just a lot in there, and it goes back and forth, right? He cuts himself, he interrupts himself to tell us about Peter, and then he goes to Caiaphas, and then he goes back to Peter, and then he goes to Pilate, and then he goes to Barabbas. And there's this dramatic irony throughout the whole thing. There's this contrast that John's using to highlight Christ's character, to lift it up. He's trying to show us something really beautiful about Christ through this contrast and irony. When I think about dramatic irony, that's kind of a weird like theatrical thing. John's audience was used to it because they went to Greek plays for fun. We don't. But uh, we could see this in maybe like the second watching of The Sixth Synths or something, where if you know the ending, the second time you watch that movie, it is a very, very different movie. Um, we could think about this maybe in like any movie where you know a character twist and you watch it through again, and now you start seeing things that you missed on the first time through. John wants us to do that. This is the last gospel written. His audience already knows the end of the story. So I think he's highlighting a couple of key things for us here. He's contrasting Christ with all these other characters, right? Sometimes when we contrast things, uh, we can see their true beauty, right? It might be really like kind of annoyingly hot down here sometimes. And then you go up to Mount Lemon and it's very cold and there's snow. And you come back and you're like, this is awesome. I don't need a jacket down here in the desert. The contrast sometimes gives us beauty. And that happens here with Christ. John is contrasting Jesus's character as a king with Pilate. He's contrasting Jesus as a true priest with the high priest, he's contrasting Jesus as the true witness with Peter, um, who doesn't bear faults, who doesn't bear true witness. Um, he's sh- super careful to show us the irony that in this conviction of a guiltless man, um, we have an unjust judge declaring the only just judge not guilty, and yet he's still going to be sentenced with crucifixion in the next chapter. Uh, and so let's let's dive in right off the bat. In verses 12 and 13, uh, John highlights that these priests aren't even following the priestly order. Christ is the true priest, and he's showing us this through them not being true priests. He highlights that they're going first to Annas' house. He's not even the high priest that year. It's his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And this is this like historical fact. There's witnesses outside of the Bible that tell us about this. They're always mentioned together, Annas and Caiaphas, because Annas was like the godfather. He held the actual political power, right? And then he had seven sons. All of them were high priests for a year. And then he had one son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the high priest for like 10 years. And that's who is the high priest this year. And John, they know this. Like, they're aware of who their high priest is. But John highlights this to to point out that none of this is the way high priesthood is supposed to work. I don't know if you've made it to Leviticus or made it through Leviticus in your Bible reading plan ever. I struggle with that. But um, if you have, the Levitical priesthood is for life. It's not a year-long appointment. It's not appointed by the Roman governor like these high priests. And so he's just like sort of making fun of the fact that there are these annual high priesthood and that he shows up with the godfather, Annas, to like sort of show him, you know, that this is not a true priesthood. And then when they get to this trial, um, there's, there's already irony that they're there in the first place. Verse 14, he reminds us that they're there because uh, Caiaphas has said it's better that one man would die than the whole nation. 
something that John has already pointed out for us multiple times in chapter 11 is an ironic statement. Caiaphas has said this because he wants to preserve his own power. He said, let's just kill this, this crazy guy, Jesus, so that we don't lose our place as the priests. And John tells us in chapter 11 uh, that this is like, they just totally miss it, right? Caiaphas has no clue what he's talking about. He's thinking about preserving his own place, but in actuality, Christ is, is the one man who's going to die on behalf of his whole nation, right? This is, this is what he's here to do is the gospel. He's there to die on our behalf. And so right off the beginning, he's sort of playing with this. And, and when they start their trial in verse 22, Christ is just given anything but a fair trial. There's this irony here of like kind of the, the evil pastor, the crooked priest, right? And they're supposed to be these holy and righteous people. And yet when they have this trial, they call him and they don't give him any witnesses. And he says, like, can I have a witness, please? Ask some of my disciples. I haven't been doing anything crazy. And what do they do? They slap him across the face. They've got this like henchman, you know, the, the guy that does the being for the mob that slaps him across the face and just showing, highlighting that this is not a fair trial at all. Verse 28, he goes on. They've, they've done this trial. John doesn't focus on it a lot as much as the other gospels do. But then they go, and, and one thing John does point out for us is they take Christ bound, and they walk him over to Pilate's house. And instead of taking him into where Pilate would normally do judgments, instead of going into the courthouse, they have Pontius Pilate come outside because they're not supposed to go into the home of a Gentile. And so like in the middle of this whole thing, this whole completely unjust and unclean trial, they're worried about walking over the doorway and getting themselves ceremonial and clean. Like, it's just absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's, I think, kind of supposed to be comedic that in the middle of this moment where they're, like, committing this enormous unjust atrocity, the thing they're concerned about is sort of like, oh, well, what if I'm, like, spiritually unclean because I go into a Gentile's house? It's absolutely preposterous. And we do the same thing, right? We commit, sometimes we, we just are totally wrong on something, and then we're worried, like, wait, what if I didn't cross my hands before I prayed at this meal? Like, I was just totally rude to the waitress, but, like, what if I didn't, I didn't, you know, pray before I ate? I missed a bite. And so there's just this sort of silly religious hypocrisy that he's pointing out for us. They don't want to go in, and he, he's just highlighting this versus Christ, the one who upholds the law, the true priest, the true sacrifice. He is completely contrasted with these priests. They're at Passover. They're supposed to be focusing on this like lamb that's been shed for the nation whose blood is going to be smeared across the doorway to commemorate you know, what Christ has done or God has done in Egypt for them. And instead they're focused on like, am I going to be unclean in the middle of this trial by going into a Gentile's house? And against this, we just have Christ, who's the perfect high priest right? Hebrews tells us a lot about that, but he's the perfect high priest. He's also the perfect sacrifice. He's going to be the lamb shed for their sins in the place of the nation. He's going to be the, the sacrifice for us. And they're so focused on maintaining their place, on maintaining their sort of religious elitism and, and power over society that they totally miss this. There's, there's a lot of ways I think we do the same thing. Maybe this is a question for life groups this week. What are ways that we set ourselves up as fake priests, that we live sort of a hypocritical religion, right? We, we, instead of relying on Christ as our great high priest, instead of relying on his sacrifice, sometimes we cling to our own forms of religion. We pretend to be religious when maybe we have no true love for God, right? 
there's a lot of good things we could do that like WWJD bracelets and cross necklaces and things, probably a good thing. But we could also do them without any heart and just have this like total pretense of religion, right? There's something awful about being cut off in traffic by someone with like the family bumper sticker and all the little kids and the WWJD and the cross and hopefully not a Holy Cross bumper sticker on the back. But that's, that's what we see here. Sometimes we also maybe like the, these high priests, we kind of find our righteousness in our own areas of excellence. Like, man, I am so good at this. Like, I just look at those poor people that are just so ignorant, and I just wish they were as good as me. And we're so proud of the things that we're good at, whether that be our hobbies or our work or our friends or our income, whatever that might be. We're so proud that we're not like those other people. And that's, that's these priests. They're so proud that they're not like this homeless man Jesus. And yet they're just completely wrong. They've totally missed the point of this priesthood, of this relationship with God. Sometimes we, we try to make our own sacrifices, right? We bargain with God like a priest. We say like, hey, if I can just give up chocolate for Lent, then maybe will you give me full completeness and happiness in my life? He's like, well, I don't care if you have chocolate or not, right? We make all these little sacrifices with God thinking like, if I can just bargain my way out of this, then he'll like me. Then he'll give me what I want. And of course it is good to sacrifice things, uh, but it is not good to try to do that to manipulate God. And that's what these priests are doing. They're about to go into the temple this whole next day and offer all these sacrifices to try to earn God's favor. And Christ is contrasted with this because he just has none of it. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He doesn't need to bargain with God. He doesn't need to follow their whole trial thing. Instead, he just says, like, call, I'll call my own witnesses. You know, I trust in who I am. And when we think about the priesthood, you know, this main thing that priests in the Old Testament do, it's kind of hard because we have visions of priests and teachers and pastors today. But in the Old Testament, priests do really one thing. They offer sacrifices for God's people on their behalf. And they do this at the temple. There's this one meeting place where heaven on the highest hill in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, heaven meets earth. And the sacrifice is offered there on behalf of God's people. That's their actual job. They're not doing any of it in this passage. And yet they're leading Christ to do the ultimate sacrifice on the ultimate uh, top of the hill in Jerusalem, right? He's going to Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull, in order to be given as a sacrifice where the temple curtain is going to be split in two. He's going to be not only the ultimate priest for them and for us, but the ultimate sacrifice. And, and he doesn't want our sacrifice as our priest. He doesn't want our religion. He doesn't want our, our good works. He doesn't want our sacrifices. We can do all those things in good ways as a response, but none of those are going to earn our favor with God. Oh, it's only his sacrifice that's going to do that. We also see him contrasted, not just with the priest, but with the king or with Pilate specifically. Uh, in verse 28, he's tried, he's bound, he's, he's brought to Pontius Pilate's house. Pilate is the Roman governor. He's the symbol of uh, authority and actual political power in the land, right? This is not a free country that they live in in Jesus' time. And power is held by the Romans, and Pontius Pilate is the seat of that power. He's brought in there, and he's contrasted with this powers, uh, Pilate's political power in the moment versus Christ's real power as the true king, right? Uh, we can think of Pontius Pilate, I think of as sort of the annoying little dog at the dog park versus the really big one. 
The annoying dog has to constantly bark. It will not stop nipping at your heels and chasing you down. Uh, my roommates used to have a little dog and it would always need to put its foot on top of your foot to show like I am the master here. Versus the big dog that knows, no dude, I've got this. And he gives maybe that one big deep woof, but nothing else because he's the real king. This is Christ here versus Pilate. Pilate is this like petulant little dog barking, trying to show his anger and his power and his political authority. Some, some things we do too. Um, and Christ is just totally contrasted with this. Right off the bat, in verse 31, he sort of taunts the Jewish leaders. He says, look, he, take him by yourself, judge him by your own law. And he says this because he knows they can't do it. He says this because it's not legal for them to put someone to death. They need Pontius Pilate to do that. They're not allowed to. And he wants to hear them say it. He wants to hear them say, we can't do it. It's illegal. He's trying to flex as hard as he can. And he's got to point out, you know, that he wants to hear them say that actually, Pontius Pilate, you are the one with the real power. He, he needs to be afraid of threats as a real political power here and now, just like our own kings and presidents and geopolitical worries. He is afraid that what if someone else comes and takes me over? What if someone else uh, takes control of my power? That's his job is to be afraid of that for Rome. Uh, he is constantly afraid that someone might be stronger. Historically, this is true. We can look at him again outside of Scripture. He's a real historical figure. Uh, one of his contemporaries, Herod Agrippa, not in this story, but um, Pilate's friends with him. Uh, Augustus Caesar said it was, you would last longer as one of uh, Herod's pigs than as one of his children because Herod killed so many of his children because he was so afraid that he was going to lose power to them and that they might assassinate him. And Pilate does the exact same thing. He's totally afraid of this. When Christ comes in to hear him, the charge is that he's the king of the Jews. And the first question he asks him down in verse 33 is, are you really a king? Are you really here to like challenge my political authority? And like, if he really thinks he's a king, if he really thinks Jesus is trying to take political power from him, then he's just going to immediately have him killed. But he asks, he asks the question, you know, are you a king? Because he's afraid that Christ might be stronger. And Jesus' answer here, that question and his answer, are recorded verbatim in all four Gospels. Very few things show up exactly the same in all these four different witnesses to the same truth. Very few things. He says, are you a king? In verse 37, and Christ says, you say that I'm a king. He turns his words back around on him. Because Pilate is asking him, not just are you claiming to be a king, but are you a political threat? Are you seeking political power? And Christ, like, it would be really nice if he said, like, yes, I'm seeking political power, and if you're a Christian, you should join this political party. It would be really nice. He doesn't, though. He doesn't either say, no, I'm not seeking political power, and as Christians, you should have no influence in this whatsoever, either. He doesn't say either of those things. He asks him, are you a king? Are you seeking political power? And he says, you say that I am. It's completely unhelpful if we're trying to justify our political stance or party, which is good. It's good for us. Uh, but Christ says that I'm, uh, he, he says this because he's truly the king, right? He's the true king of the world, the true king of the universe. And yet his kingdom that he's establishing, not at all of this world. So often we get so confused by this right here. Because we get the fact that Christ is truly our king, but we do not get the fact that his kingdom is not of this world. 
We get so, so upset and hurt and worried sometimes, worrying about the current political problems, our current political threats, no matter where you're coming from on them. We worry about what if these guys take over? What if this gets passed? What if this country is stronger than us? And Christ says to this, my kingdom is not of this world. I have no concern for this. He's, he's of actually God's kingdom. He's in Jerusalem, and they have an actual unjust oppressor over them, Rome. He could totally take over it and make Jerusalem great again. He could do it. He could rebuild the actual wall that has actually been torn down in Jerusalem. And he says, I have no concern for any of that. Wherever we come from on the political spectrum, Christ has no concern for which party wins the next election. He cares about the world so much that he entered into it even unto death. But he has no concern for who's going to win the next election. He says, I am not a king of this world. If we try to put him in that category, we're just going to be confused. We're just going to be angry. We're just going to be let down when it seems like he doesn't have the power he says he does. He says, I'm not a king like you're imagining, Pilate. I'm not a king like you want. He's a king that is so much better. His kingdom is not of this world at all. And there's so many ways that we try to set ourselves up as little kings, right? We, we obviously, I've already harped on it a little too much maybe, but we, we focus on thinking that our country right now is God's kingdom when it's just not, right? If it was going to be anybody, it would be Israel, and we're not in Israel. So, uh, but... Instead, there's other ways that we personally set ourselves up as kings, right? We, we sometimes seek political power. Sometimes we look to our own government, our own authority to save us. Sometimes we just want to be king like Adam and Eve in the garden. We just want to make the decision. I want to decide which fruit is good and bad, not you. I want to live this way. One of my dear friends in a, a college and young adult group that I led a couple years ago, we were going through Romans, and he got about halfway through it and was like, man, I just don't think I'm a Christian. I'm like, whoa, this Bible said he's not working. Uh, and he was like, I just don't think I'm a Christian because like, this picture of God is that he is sovereign, he's in control of all the things, and I don't want him to be in control of my life. And he just couldn't wrestle with that. He couldn't submit to God's kingship. Sometimes we do the same thing, right? No matter what areas we struggle in, a lot of the root is me saying, oh, I want to do it my way, uh, like Frank Sinatra. I want it my way. And he says, no, I'm your king. This is the kind of kingdom he's talking about. He cares immensely, in case you misunderstood me, he cares immensely about creation. He cares immensely about the actual political powers, but not the here and now of it. His kingdom is not of his world, but his kingdom is absolutely over this world, right? He cares so much for creation that he's entered into it. He's putting himself through this whole like, trial. He stands before Pilate. He puts on human flesh. Like Jesus gets acne and has to go to the bathroom. He cares about the world so much that he's willing to do that even unto death so that he might redeem it and bring his true kingdom into the world, a kingdom that we can't even imagine without looking at his word. So we not only see Christ as a true priest, we see him as a true king. We also see him as a true witness to truth itself or a true prophet. Uh, this is with Peter. He gets contrasted with Peter. And I love this because John doesn't tell us the Peter story all at once, right? These three denials of Peter. We probably heard that before. John splits it up throughout the passage. Starts in uh, verse 15. You know, Peter, John, Jesus has just told Pilate that he has come for one reason, not to be the king of the world right here and now, but to bear witness to the truth. That Jesus is going to bear witness to truth. He is going to tell us this good news, 
right? This is in verse 37. Sorry, I'm jumping around. It's in verse 37. He says, this is the one reason I came to bear witness to the truth, because I'm truth itself. This truth that he has, that he comes and preaches, is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not of this world, but it is at hand. Repent and believe. Put your faith in the Lord. And that's, that's this amazing gospel that he comes proclaiming. Uh, and he tells us that this is his truth that he bears, and he's ready to bear witness to it like an Old Testament prophet. And yet in verse, uh, it, when Peter gets asked, are you a disciple? Peter completely misses it, right? Last week we read about the arrest of Jesus and Peter was so ready to fight, right? He's so ramped up. He had like five Red Bulls and they, they come to, he was trying to stay up all night. He might have. And so they, but they come to arrest Jesus and Peter's like, not today. He pulls out his knife and he takes a swing at the guy's head and he misses and he gets the guy's ear. Like you're not aiming for the ear. He, he cuts off the guy's ear, right? And, and he's so ready to like fight and die. It's this wonderful picture. And Jesus is just like, dude, you've totally missed the point. This is not what it's about. And so Peter, like, clearly loves the Lord. He's been told, you're going to betray me. So he's, like, amped up. He's ready. And so he's like, well, I don't know what Jesus seems next, but I'm going to be with him. So he starts following him. He follows him even into the high priest's courtyard. And on the way in, right, the servant girl who's, who's just, like, standing at the gate and holding the door open, she's like, are you not one of his disciples? And he's like, no, no, don't worry. He's so ready. He's on his way to bear witness to the truth that he misses the actual moment where he's supposed to bear witness to the truth. He does this two more times. He does it three times total where people ask him, are you one of Jesus' disciples? And he's like, no, 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 no. Because I think he's standing there because he's ready to be called in as one of Christ's witnesses. Christ is asking for witnesses. He would have been expected that he's supposed to be given witnesses in his trial. Peter's ready to be one of his witnesses. Jesus even says, ask my disciples. And Peter never gets called. But Peter's standing there and he's so ready to come and bear witness that he totally misses his actual moment to do it. It's not in front of the court. It's not this dramatic. Peter would have loved Mel Gibson movies. He really, really would have wanted to be in the Patriot or Braveheart and like carry the flag and yell freedom and do all of those things. And like, I love those too. Those are like my favorite movies growing up. And maybe not good movies for a kid. But anyways, he loved them. He loves them. And Peter's so ready to go do that. And he totally misses along the way when the servant girl, when the waitress, when the person in the checkout line uh, comes to ask him, where are you one of his disciples too? He's so ready to be this prophetic voice, this amazing testifier of truth, to stand up and die for God. And yet he misses this basic question. And this is absolutely us, right? We are so excited to like just own somebody in the comment section or so excited to like stand up and take our country or whatever it is we want. We're so excited to like stand on the street corner and preach. And yet we miss the actual opportunity when our friend is like, how is it that you're dealing with this grief right now? Or we miss the actual opportunity to, to bear witness to Christ and we're asked about how are you doing with your you know, struggles? And we could point to Christ. We could think about all these ways to explain, to stand for our faith, to, to be true to the fact that we're Christians. And yet we, we are so excited about the big things that we miss our actual moment God has called us to. Right? Eugene Peterson calls the Christian life a long obedience in the same direction. There's not necessarily anything really dramatic or exciting about that, right? I love Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the, the beginning of the book, though, is when he becomes a Christian. And then there's this whole rest of it where he continues on. And it's way less exciting than the first part, at least to me growing up. And 
That's, that's the Christian life. Peter's so ready for this big, bold moment that he misses the actual little question. And it tells us, you know, not, not in this passage, but in Mark's version, at the third denial, Christ looks across the courtyard at him, their eyes meet, the rooster crows, and Peter just breaks down into tears. And there's this really tender moment where no matter how we've messed up or we've bear, failed to bear witness, at the end of John's gospel, he takes a huge chunk right at the very end to show us that Peter and John, or, or Peter and Christ absolutely get back together because Christ is just totally ready and willing and excited to forgive him. He doesn't give him a lecture about it. He, doesn't, he, he just says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you, he keeps, he will, good will hunting him. He just keeps asking the same question over and over again. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And this is what Christ is asking of us. When we fail to, to bear witness to him truthfully, when we are so excited for our big prophetic moments that we miss the little opportunities in our actual life that we've been called to. There's, there's one more uh, character in this story we haven't talked about yet. Um, Barabbas. Barabbas, the very end of it. Because Christ is so excited to, to ask us if we love him. He's so excited to forgive us like he does Peter that he's actually willing even to swap places with us. And we see this with Christ, with, with Barabbas. Christ as the true Bar Abba, the true Barabbas. Um, in verse 39, Pilate comes out. He's still, even his, all of his power, at the whims of their customs. He says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. Told elsewhere that he is an insurrectionist. He's a rebel. He's been starting this mob violence. He's the, the actual political leader that they've been looking for. Because he's one of these zealots who existed all throughout the first century at this time. Who said, let's take back Jerusalem from Rome. Let's make Jerusalem God's kingdom here and now. Let's do it. Like he, he borrows from the Pharisees this like zeal for the law and he borrows from the people this like ability to hold power and swords and he takes all this and he starts an actual insurrection. And, and Christ uh, is this sort of true Barabbas. Or Barabbas is an anti-Christ, to borrow that. Barabbas is a fake Messiah. He's, he's just, Barabbas is just like Peter, right? He's ready to fight. He's got the sword out. He's ready to, to do that. He's, he's just like the priest. He's willing to work with religion. He's fighting for religion, but I don't think he actually gets it. He's just like Pilate. He understands the importance of political power, and he's ready to wield it in his eyes, I think, hopefully for good. And then he's also a fake Christ because he's Bar Abba. His name, Bar, means son of Abba, father. We see Abba, maybe in Romans, you know, there's that passage where we cry out, Abba, Father, so maybe that's familiar. His name would not be lost on John's audience. That this man, Bar Abba, son of the Father, is the one substituted for Christ. We see this son of the Father, that's his name on paper maybe, contrasted with the true son of the Father. Christ is the true son of the Father. It's not just his name, it's who he is. Like, if we're going to try to define Jesus, it's before the world began, he's the eternally only begotten Son of the Father. He's the true Bar Abba. And yet Barabbas, he's just a cheap knockoff, right? He's not a real priest. He doesn't actually understand religious authority. He's not the real king. He gets arrested. Like, that's how his revolt works out. He gets arrested. He's about to be put to death. He's not a real prophet. He can't really bear witness to the truth. He's not really the Son of the Father. 
But what he is, is a great example of the substitute that Christ is in our place. See, Barabbas is about to be put to death. You can imagine, imagine the fear, right? He's sweating, he's feeling anxious. If you ever felt anxiety, this is it. He's there, he's about to be killed, and he hears the crowd chanting, chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's probably thinking, this is me, this is it, it must be close now. And yet when he gets, the, the, the chain turns in the lock and the prisoner comes, his handcuffs are let go, and he gets brought out. And maybe as he's leaving the building, a free man, he looks over and he sees this other man, Christ, Jesus, who has been crucified in his place. Barabbas is totally us, right? He gets substituted for Christ. Instead of Barabbas dying, Christ dies in his place. One gets let free and one gets killed. And that's us. Because although we have tried to set ourselves up as kings, we have been fake priests, we have failed in our witness, Christ says, I'm willing to die for you in your place. The true Son of the Father is willing to substitute himself for us, for you, for me, only because of his love. He's willing to put himself in our place so that we might live. Just imagine that feeling that Barabbas has. That's the same feeling Christ is offering to each of us this total forgiveness with just the same question that he asked Peter at the end of the gospel. Do you love me? It doesn't matter how we've failed, how we've messed up. He is simply asking, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because if we do, then he is willing and excited and he already has, in fact, switched places with us. The true son of the father has, this man who Pilate declares there's no guilt in him has been killed for us who have guilt. So hopefully in this passage we see Christ as the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true substitute for our sin. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.